Walter Sivan Armstrong here is going to kick it off, uh, and then we have a commentary from Dr. Nick Shackle from Cardiff. Uh, Walter is the Chauncey Stillman Professor in Practical Ethics at the Department of Philosophy and the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, but uh, we know him better as a member of the Centre for Neuroethics at Oxford and a frequent visitor uh, to our shores. And I'm not going to read a paper, but, uh, but I do want to talk about religion and compromise. And I want to start, if I can, uh, with a parable. Uh, it, it seemed like a conference on religion. I have a parable somewhere. Oh, Oops. There we go. Uh, so there were there were once these two people named Adam and Eve, and they lived uh, in a beautiful garden. No surprise about that. Uh, and they were peaceful, friendly neighbors. But then there was a horrible storm, and lightning struck a large tree, which was on Eve's property, but right on the edge of Eve's property. Uh, and very near to Adam's house, which was close to the edge of his property. And Adam, uh, well, the tree was leaning. It looked like it was dying, and the tree is leaning towards Adam's house. And Adam was worried that it was going to fall on his house, so he asked Eve if he could cut it down. But Eve liked the tree, right? She enjoyed seeing it in shade. She liked watching it. Uh, so he said, look, I know you like a tree there, so I'll put a new tree in it. I'll pay for the tree. You can pick it out, and I'll plant it, right? It seems to me this is a reasonable compromise, right? Each person gets part of what he or she wants, and they each give up part of what uh, he or she wants. Uh, and it enables their friendship to continue. But they're, they're not the evil stepsisters. They're the evil brothers. Eve has three brothers. Uh, let's call them Abraham, Noah, and Moses, uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, they lived with Eve, uh, and so since they were part of her tight-knit family community, she wanted them to be happy with this compromise, too. Uh, so at first, Abe rejected the compromise, because he was scared that the new tree wouldn't be big enough and wouldn't provide enough shade on hot summer days. Um, but then Adam pointed out that well, you know, if that tree falls on my house, you're going to have to pay for the damage. Um, and so then Abe says, well, okay, then I'll accept the compromise. Okay. Then Noah says, not me. I got plenty of money, right? If falls on your house, I'll fix your house. I don't care. I still like the tree. Uh, but then Adam reminded Noah of the many times in the past when Adam had helped Noah and his family with various types of problems. They've been friends for years and so on. So when Noah thought about that history and friendship, he said, well, okay, you know, it really means so much to you. Uh, you've helped us, I'll, I'll be fine. But Moses was left. Moses, however, rejected the compromise. Because when the lightning struck the tree, he had a vision that God was, uh, that God was speaking to him and declaring the tree sacred. It's not the burning bush, it's just you know, a tree. But he did think that the tree was sacred somehow. So Adam reminded Moses about the legal liability, but Moses said, hey, you know, I mean, it's nothing compared to the wrath of God, like you know, a little bit of money versus hell, no way. Uh, and Adam reminded Moses of all that he had done for him. But Adam said, God gave me my very life. And then Adam claimed, well, maybe God was wrong about the tree being sacred. And of course, Moses said, blasphemy. can't say that. And Adam asked, how do you know your vision came from God? He said, I have faith. <laughs> so, Adam appealed to Eve and said, look, you know, there are three of you against one. But she said, no, we've got this tight-knit community. We're living together. You know, I'm, I can't really go without Moses if he feels so strongly about it. And so the deal fell through, the tree fell on Adam's house, they had to pay for the repairs, and they were never friends again. Now, obviously, you know, a parable can't make an argument. Uh, and I'm not pretending, but that's supposed to illustrate my thesis, which is that many religious beliefs have a tendency to undermine good compromises in the same way as Moses' vision did. Um, now, to argue for this thesis, what I need to do is not tell stories, but define what a compromise is, clarify when a compromise is good. Uh, I'll also talk about what counts as undermining. Then I'll specify which religious beliefs create the issue at hand. 
and show how these religious beliefs actually undermine good compromises. <coughs> so first of all, what's a compromise? And here, actually, this talk was you know, inspired by Avishai Margulit's new book on compromises, which is a wonderful read, and I uh, strongly recommend it. Uh, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's uh, very stimulating. Uh, and he distinguishes thin compromises from thick compromises. Thin compromises are basically any non-coerced, multi-party agreement where neither party gets all at once. So, you know, when you buy fish and chips for lunch, you know, you'd like to get it for two pounds, right? But the shop owner wants to get 10 pounds for it, and you end up buying it for five. You know, you each kind of give in a little bit, right? Uh, and it's not coerced, and there are a couple of you. So that's a thin compromise. Not much to those. They happen all the time. Thick compromises, on the other hand, include all those features and more. Each person accepts some sacrifice in central values. It's not just peripheral values, like I wish it were a pound less, but it's something that really matters to you. Uh, secondly, the agreement expresses recognition of the other person's point of view. This is, as Margaret points out, uh, one reason why there's such fights about who even gets <coughs> to come to the table to negotiate in many, uh, in many conflicts, because to let them come to the table is to express recognition of the person's point of view. Uh, and that's part of a thick compromise. And finally, you don't agree to a certain thing just on the basis that it's just. That you think, oh yeah, they convinced me that was the right thing to do. But rather, I'm willing to give in a little bit for the sake of peace and friendship. Uh, okay? <coughs> so just to illustrate this, give an example. Uh, suppose that I want a used car and you know, this used car is worth $12,000 to me. I should have put pounds, I'm sorry, but I couldn't find the pound sign. <laughs> uh, so, stupid American. Uh, so the used car is worth $12,000, but of course I'd prefer to pay $5,000. Ooh, excuse me. Uh, and my neighbor has a car to sell, uh, and he's asking $10,000, uh, and his book value is $6,000. Book value meaning, this is, if you look it up, if it's totaled, your insurance company will look up to figure out how much loss there was, and there are books that do that. So it says what, supposedly what the market value is. Okay. Well, my neighbors, I, I say to my neighbor, well, why, why do you want 10000 for a car whose book value is 6000 And he says, well, it's got sentimental value. You know, this was, the, this was the car I took my wife on our first date in. You know, and I'm really reluctant to get rid of it, but I need the money. Um, so he said, I, I could offer him $6,000, because that's the fair price. You know, I started five as my ideal, but I could, I could go to six, because uh, that's a fair price. But then it wouldn't be a thick compromise, because you're doing it for the sake of justice, not for the sake of uh, peace and friendship. I could offer seven, because I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to look for any more cars. But again, that's not for the sake of peace and friendship. That's just... I'm willing to pay you know, a little bit more to avoid having to go through all the hassle of continuing to shop. So it's when I offer $8,000, and I do that in order to express rec uh, recognition of the car's value to my neighbor so that we can continue to be friends and live together, and, you know, and I'll have his car, but he'll be able to see it next door, so he's ha we're happy to come down from his 10000 to his eight, so it can be nearby. And now we're all kind of living together in peace and harmony. Uh, then the compromise would be thick. Okay? Now, I take it that some thick compromises are good, and I meant this to be one of them, even though it doesn't rest on any principle. Notice if I had said nine instead of eight or $8,232.72, that would have made you know, almost as much sense. Uh, but you don't need any principle for the particular agreement. Uh, and that doesn't stop it from being good. And I want to give you one more example, just because I love this example, and I use it all the time for other purposes. So um, this is a, a well-known example in American contract law. Willie and Lucille PV House uh, lived in Oklahoma, and they made a deal with the Garland Coal and Mining Company to do strip mining of their farm. And the deal was that uh, Garland would pay them a certain amount of money up front, and they give them a certain percentage of the uh, profits from the coal sales. And then when they were done, they'd strip mine all that they could. They would come back and fix the land up again so that it looked just like it did before. And that was all written into the contract. So Garland then 
strip mine the land, you know, gave them the money up front, strip mine the land, gave them the percentage of the profits from the coal, and then left and didn't fix the land afterwards. And nobody doubts that the contract was violated and that Garland ought to pay something. Even Garland doesn't deny that. The question is how much. It would cost $29,000 for Garland to restore the land. It would cost, but the PV houses didn't want to argue about how much it would cost, so they sued for $28,000. Uh, the whole, uh, and so there's one question there is simply, should the court award damages with the actual cost of fulfilling the contract? You know, one thing would be the court could say, you've got to fulfill the contract and fix the land. Another possibility is that uh, you can only get, you get the cost of restoring the land, right? Another possibility is you get the amount you sued for. But the problem in this case was really that the entire farm was only worth 300 bucks. I mean, this is Oklahoma. This is not <laughs> valuable land. And so uh, the entire farm was only worth 300 bucks. And that's after it's restored. So <laughs> the maximum value of the maximum loss uh, in, this, uh, in this exchange was $300. So there actually were precedents for you, have, you, know, you get strict compliance. You know, the court could have said you've got to comply and fulfill the thing. You've got to pay the cost of fulfilling. You've got to pay the amount um, that, was, that the person's suing for if they win the suit. Uh, but you can also say that uh, you only get the loss in value for the violation of the contract. And there are legal precedents on all sides uh, for that. So the question is, how much should the PV houses get? And the court goes, I don't know, we'll give you 5,000 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a, a pretty good you know, compromise to have reached. Uh, because the PV houses said, wow, we just got 16 times the value of our farm, which was their biggest you know, uh, their biggest uh, piece of property, the bit, most valuable thing they own. Uh, and the, the Garland Company was happy because they were worried they were going to have to pay the $29,000, so they got down to a sixth of what, of what they were going to pay, and they were happy. Notice, since this was enforced by the court, it's not actually a compromise in the sense I was mentioning, but they could have settled out of court for the same kind of figure, and then it would have been a compromise, and the PV houses would have recognized you know, the viewpoint of the company, because if they had had to pay the full 29000 they would have lost money on the whole deal, which, which wouldn't have made much sense from the viewpoint of the company. And, and of course, the Garland Company can say, well, it is your farm, and you don't want to live with the, the strip mining right next to you. So they're actually recognizing each other's point of view to a certain extent. So it might be obvious, but I wanted to, you know, show that, uh, that these thick compromises can actually work. They don't always work. Um, they have compromise. That they can work without any principle whatsoever to pick the particular amount that you're compromising on. Uh, not all compromises, of course, are good. Uh, it was, it's interesting if you look in Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, then uh, you find that it's, it actually says compromise is a good term in Europe and a bad term in the U.S. <laughs> Which might be true. Uh, in the U.S., people think, you know, compromise is, is a bad thing. You shouldn't compromise. Uh, and, it all, and some of it's based on notorious compromises that were made with the Nazis at the beginning of World War II, uh, which some people think led to greater bloodshed, would have been better off, both from the viewpoint of, of kind of a consequentialist viewpoint and also from the viewpoint of human rights if that compromise had not been made. So I think it was a bad compromise, and you know you can just add the two reasons together in that case for, because of its bad effects and also because of human rights. So there obviously is going to be controversy about whether the bad effects, whether the effects are bad in the long run, which basic human rights people have or different types of entities have, depending on whether you're going to count them as people. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, fetuses, of course. Uh, but I'm going to be interested in the, I'm interested in compromises uh, that are bad on non-religious standards. Okay, some compromises are going to be bad just because of the religious beliefs, but others are bad on non-religious standards.
So let's assume a compromise is good when it would make the world better and would not violate too many human rights. Vague, but I, I think it's all we need here. My thesis is that religion undermines some compromises that are good when they're judged independently of religious beliefs. So what is it to undermine is the next question. Well, to causally undermine a compromise would be simply to prevent it, to cause that compromise not to be accepted. To rationally undermine a compromise would be to hold a belief that makes it irrational for one of the parties to accept it. Okay? Now, obviously, if, if people, that's a big if there, right? If people are less likely to do what's irrational, then to rationally undermine a compromise is to causally undermine it. But you still need empirical evidence to find out whether that conditional holds, and I'm sad to say I don't know. If anybody has any suggestion of how to get the empirical evidence, or even better, if there is empirical evidence, I'd love to see it. Uh, but I always didn't succeed in, in finding it. Um, however, I'm going to argue mainly that religious beliefs rationally undermine good compromises in the hope that that will at least make it plausible that uh, religious beliefs also will, at least in many circumstances, causally undermine uh, good compromises. How so? Well, remember that a thick compromise requires a sacrifice of a central value, recognition of the other's point of view, desire for peace and friendship, uh, and certain religious beliefs seem to rule out any sacrifice in certain central religious values that are, especially ones that are supposed to be infinite and absolute. We'll talk about these in a second. I'm just laying out the, you know, the general outline here. Uh, Certain religious beliefs rule out recognition of the viewpoints of others. Those viewpoints of others are seen as heresy or idolatry or ignorance. Uh, and they diminish the value of non-religious ways of life. We'll talk about that when, when people convert to a religion. They often say, you know, my old way of life was just sinful. And only now in my new, when I, once I've been reborn, does my new life have true value. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to I want to say a, a word about what I mean by religion, because a lot of this conference so far has been has dealt with ritual and practice, and also with community, and I think those are absolutely central and very important features of many religions. Uh, they might be even more important than beliefs, but I'm a philosopher, so I'm going to talk about beliefs, uh, and. I'm not going to talk about all religious beliefs, because I think religious beliefs are just way too diverse to say anything interesting about all of them. Okay, So I'm going to focus on certain religious beliefs. I'm concerned with religious beliefs that there's a God who's all-knowing and all-good. God revealed his will in a sacred text. There's certain people who have special religious authority or some kind of special relation to God, in particular, that that make them authorities on the meaning of the religious text. And then some people go to heaven and, and others to hell. Now, I take it that this is just a subset of religions. It might even be a small subset of religions. It might not include religions of the largest continent in the world. But uh, still, the subset's important because it includes some of the most widespread and powerful religions. I mean, I'm from America, so I'm concerned about evangelical Christianity. But I think most other Christians and, and and many Muslims uh, hold these types of views. And you don't have to hold them all. Uh, the more you hold, the more it gets in the way of compromise. How does it work then? Well, those beliefs, notice, are not about compromise, but they still get in the way. And the examples I'm going to go through are simply that, well, some people go to heaven and others go to hell. Believers are born again into a new life, and their old life is a life of sin. Uh, and God is perfect. First, heaven and hell. Compromise requires that each side accepts some sacrifice in uh, its central values. But the Bible says, and, and I, by the way, think the Bible's central to Christianity. I know not everybody thinks that, but uh, coming from a southern uh, religious tradition, the Bible seems to be central. And it says, what can it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul, right? So why would you sacrifice one of your central values for the sake of friendship if sacrificing that central value 
is going to land you in hell. That would be irrational. Okay? Notice that even if it's just going <coughs> to increase the chances you go to hell, it's going to be problematic. And furthermore, right, even if you say, well, there's no hell, people are going to go to hell, but it's eternal bliss in heaven, right? It's the same thing's going to apply. You know, if my friend's nice, but eternal bliss, that's another thing. <laughs> now, there are different views on heaven and hell. Exclusivism, I, I, I mean, these words are used in different ways, but, but I'm going to mean by exclusivism that only believers uh, in that particular religion are saved. Preferentialism is that believers are more likely to be saved, and universalism is the view that everyone is saved. Uh, I take it that all Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists, I, I was told I should explain what Southern Baptism is, so it's the largest uh, group of religious believers in the U.S., 20 million strong, and they hold beliefs like uh, women shouldn't work outside the home when they have a child under six in the house. Uh, so very conservative, uh, evangelical group. Uh, and many Muslims, I take it, are exclusivists as well, although I'm not a scholar of, of Islam. Uh, the Catholic Church, I've been told, Steve is my source here, uh, reportedly held that exclusivism uh, until Vatican II when it became preferentialist. Uh, I'd be interested in comments about that, but I don't think it matters for my purposes because preferentialism has the same uh, implications for compromise that exclusivism does. If this compromise is going to create even a small risk of eternal torment, then uh, the same is still going to be irrational to accept the compromise. So the one that's left is universalism. And some people in, uh, in America, and I assume here as well, go for universalism. But here's the story of one person who did, a guy named Carlton Pearson. He ran a megachurch. I think there were about 25,000 people who came to church every Sunday to listen to him preach. And you can go on the web and see and see videos of him preaching. He's a very talented speaker. Um, but then he found out that his parents had uh, committed adultery uh, when, he was, when he was very young. And he said, uh-oh, mom and dad are going to hell. And then he had a friend in his church who came out, who was a, a great church member who did wonderful things and came out of the closet as gay. Uh-oh, his friend's going to hell. But, but the, the straw that broke the camel's back, he, he was watching a, a news story about uh, refugees in Rwanda. Uh, and these poor people are getting, you know, streaming out of the village with no place to go, obviously suffering, and people chasing after them with machetes or whatever it was. And he said, they're all going to hell too. He thought, that can't be right. You know, God wouldn't do that. Uh, so he had this revelation that after death, everyone is redeemed. Everyone. No exceptions. The gospel of inclusion, he called it. So what happens? Oral Roberts immediately says, you're out of here. You're not a member of the church. You can have nothing to do with this anymore. And he had been to Oral Roberts University and was good friends with Oral Roberts. He was just basically ostracized by all his friends that he was denounced. And his church went from 25,000 to about 900 members that week. <laughs> it didn't take long. Uh, after he announced it, that was it. He announced it in church, and the next week it was, it was down. Uh, so, although universalism is a coherent doctrine, it does have severe practical and social costs within a religious community that's built on alternative beliefs. And that's what makes... Uh, and that's going to make uh, one way out of this problem uh, very difficult. So let's, just to make it concrete, let's look at an example. Uh, Island Pond, Vermont, it's a little town up in the northern parts of Vermont. And uh, what they wanted to do was start a theocratic community. So they moved into the town, and they had 90% of the people in the town uh, were members of this church, and they wanted to pass a bunch of, of laws. Uh, and one of them was that women are not allowed to wear trousers uh, in town. And the other was that another, I mean, there are a whole bunch of them, I just picked two examples, was that uh, they were allowed to beat their children with rods as a, as a punishment. Okay? And some liberals, uh, Luke Swain at Dartmouth was someone, is someone who's written about this case, uh, and 
He said, well, we should give them quasi-sovereignty, right? They should be able to control some of the laws within their jurisdiction. And, you know, requiring women, you know, not to wear, forbidding women to wear trousers is not a minor infraction, but other people get to wear what they want. And so, you know, it seems sexist and, uh, and demeaning uh, to have restrictions of that sort. So it's not a minor compromise, uh, but we're, not, we're still not going to allow them to beat children. They've got to compromise a little bit on the other side. And Island Pond immediately said, Proverbs 23, 13 through 14, do not withhold discipline from your child, from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. See, it always, it always comes back to hell, right? I'm not going to compromise at all because if I compromise, I'm not going to be saving his soul from death. Um, so there have been compromises, of course, like with the mortgages on polygamy. It's not clear why or whether that was rational. It might be because polygamy was allowed but not required by the Mormon church. I'm not sure. But I certainly don't want to say that religions never compromise, rather that certain types of religious beliefs tied to certain texts but also beliefs about the nature of God and the afterlife uh, will make it very difficult. Second example is rebirth. Uh, among evangelical Christians, many claim to be born again into a new life, and they see their old life as sinful and meaningless. Well, if that's the case, then the things that you valued in the, that old life also lose value. Uh, and so they lo you lose any motivation to sacrifice a central value in your new life for the sake of your old life. And again, I'll appeal to the Bible. Uh, this is Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You have to hate the things from the previous life in order to uh, become a true disciple. But to hate is to say, I'm not going to put value on the things that I used to put value on, and that's going to make it difficult to see why you should compromise with the things in that old life. Uh, an application here uh, is simply uh, the, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, what I like about it is not that part, which everybody remembers, but uh, the uh, six days you labor, the seventh is a Sabbath to your Lord your God. But on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your maidservant, nor your manservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Uh, now admittedly, Jesus modified this in the New Testament, but that's because he was God. You know? He can modify things. As humans can't do that. Uh, you can't kind of go to the Bible verse and go, well, I think it shouldn't be, it shouldn't apply to the alien within your gates. Uh, and so, since you can't, you have to, you know, of course you can try to interpret it. There are lots of disputes about what counts as working or labor, right? Does cooking food count as reading? Count? But fixing plumbing is clearly work, right? I assure you, if you don't believe it, try it. It's work. And so imagine that your old mother's plumbing is leaking in the, the floor, the first floor of her apartment and the basement and all getting soaked and she needs help and it's the Sabbath. I mean, you could just let it go, but by that time a lot of it's going to be ruined. And let's suppose that not only do you want to help her, but your son wants to help her. Well, if, you know, if you're going to follow uh, this particular thing, you're going to have to say, well, I can't do that. And remember, of course, you hate your mother, right? And so, now, why should you fix the plumbing for your old mother when you hate her if you're in your new life? I'm just taking these things literally and flat-footedly. That's what the Bible says. Um, not, uh, I'll talk about interpretation now. Uh, so, if God's all good and all knowing, then you should never accept any compromise that God opposes, right? Because He knows the right one. Okay? He knows what's right. And so, uh, it doesn't matter how reasonable it seems to you, you're just a mere mortal. So you can forget what you think. What matters is what God thinks. The only way to defend the compromise then is to deny that God really opposes the compromise. If God does oppose the compromise, it would be silly for you to trust your own judgment against God's. So the question becomes epistemological. How can you know what God opposes? Well, one possibility is to appeal to religious experience. This is, 
you know, partly a question of, you know, what's your evidence going to be if it's not scientific evidence? What kind of evidence are you going to have about uh, these types of features? Suppose you pray, uh, and then God tells, uh, tells you, or seems to tell you, that you shouldn't compromise this value. Well, then you can't compromise the value without doubting that it was God who spoke to you. But if you doubt that it was God who spoke to you after this prayer, what about the other prayers? Like, how do you know it was God at that point? And all of a sudden, the seeds of doubt are sown, as, uh, as many religious people say. Not all, but many religious people say. And then the, that doubt is going to strike at the very basis of your religious belief. So if you want to maintain your religious belief, you have to reject the compromise. You could. Oh, so here's an example uh, well-known. Joshua defeated the whole land, and he left none remaining, but destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel commanded. So if God commands you to do that, that's what you got to do. Once he determined that that's what God commanded, he couldn't even leave a few kittens leaving, living, right? Because they're breathing animals, so you got to get them all. Uh, okay, so what about, now we're not talking about prayer or religious experience, we're talking about scripture, okay? That's another way to know what God wills. But if a certain text is inspired by God, and God is all-knowing and all-good, he's all-good, I assume he's truthful, he's not going to like <clears throat> deceive us or lie to us, right? And then, uh, well, then the sacred text must be infallible. I know there are lots of people who don't believe that, but it seems to me that that's part of the religious belief. And the ones that don't believe that, you kind of ask, like, well, why? If you really believe all the other stuff, why would this thing not be infallible? Okay? So, suppose that the sacred text uh, opposes some compromise. It says this value is never to be compromised. Uh, it looks to you like that compromise would. Uh, otherwise be good, uh, but it can't be good, regardless of any reasons that you see for it. The only way to justify that compromise is to reinterpret the text. But why are you reinterpreting the text? You're reinterpreting the text in order to reach the compromise, in order to be able to justify the compromise. You're rejecting the natural reading of the text and going for a reinterpretation because of the conclusion that you want to reach. Okay? But if that's what you're doing, then you are what my friends used to call a buffet Christian, right? You don't eat the whole meal, you just kind of pick and choose the things on the buffet that you like. Uh, and the claim is, buffet Christians can't be real Christians, because to be a real Christian is to hand your will over to God. And God is telling you, eat the whole buffet. Don't just, like, pick one dessert. Uh, and so, and, and God has supplied the buffet, so it must all be good for you. He wouldn't put too much on there. And they're all, you know, obviously sugar-free. Uh, so, the religious texts undermine uh, compromise for real believers. Oh, here's an example of that. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Right? And it's pretty clear. It says everything. Right? It doesn't say everything reasonable or everything that would normally be. It says everything. And so if it says everything, right, then you have two options. You can say, it didn't really mean that, but why not? And if the answer is, well, I hope it didn't mean that, then you're interjecting your judgment against God's again. But if you're going to follow it uh, straightforwardly, then it looks like it says everything and there's no room for compromise left. Religious authorities, I'll go a little more quickly over, but it's important to say that you know, another source of interpretation of the sacred text is going to be a religious authority. Suppose that a certain religious authority has this special access to God or insight into God. It's a lot like the religious experience that if you start questioning one authority, then you're going to say, well, okay, if this one's not reliable, what am I going to do about the others? How am I going to you know, maintain any basis of this sort? Uh, once I start questioning them, because it's going to be hard to tell uh, which one to follow, except by reference to my own judgment about what's right or wrong, which operating totally independently of the religion, and then you pick the one you like because that one agrees with you. Uh, uh, and the Pope's an example there, but I won't, uh, I'm running out of time, so I want to go a little more quickly. So, uh, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that religious people uh, do not compromise. Of course they do. My view is that most religious people are more flexible and sensitive and interesting than the dogmas of their religion. 
Okay? And I'm not saying that religious doctrines never call for compromise. Right? Many religions call for compromise in those values that lie within the limits of their central religious values. Right? They all, you, know, you can say compromise on the other stuff, just not on this. And they get to pick what you're not going to compromise on. And I'm not saying that we should always compromise, because I already said some compromises are bad. Okay? So, what's the, play, the, what's the role of religion then? Religion, it seems to me, does undermine some bad compromises. It says you shouldn't compromise on this, when really you shouldn't compromise on that. Uh, and it gets it right, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But other compromises are good for all concerned, and the only basis on opposing them is that some piece of land or something declared sacred or something like that or some tree in my original parable. Um, and then it's going to undermine a good compromise and that's where the problem remains. So how does this um, lead to bigger problems? Well, what undermines compromises, it seems to me, exacerbates conflicts and turns those conflicts into wars. You know, if there's a conflict between two groups and you can work out a compromise, you've avoided a war. But if you don't work out a compromise, then uh, you, it becomes a war. Okay? So the point is not that the conflicts arise from religion. The point is that the conflicts turn into wars if compromise is ruled out. And religion plays a role in that, in ruling out the compromise. So I don't really disagree with Bob Pace. 2005 claim, which was in the, the reading for this thing, uh, for the, uh, the prior reading of the conference, we said that Islamic suicide bombing has a simple strategic goal to compel the United States and its allies to withdraw from the Arabian Peninsula and other Muslim countries. Right. Maybe that's its goal. Now the question is why that goal is reached by these means and people are unwilling to compromise you know, in certain ways that would avoid the kind of, uh, of wars that it turns into. So, saying that you're motivated in a political way or even an economic way is completely compatible with my claim that it's rejecting compromise that turns that conflict into a war. Uh, is war bad? I mean, after all, religious people can say, hey, what's the matter with war? You know, a few people die, but it's better than eternal hell. Uh, and in fact, again, I'll quote the Bible, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Okay? So, some religious people in the U.S., and I assume there, there's some people who do this in, in the U.K. as well, uh, say, yeah, so at least the conflicts. What's your point? Uh, but my point is, well, you've just admitted that religion undermines the compromise, uh, leads to conflict, and that the compromise would be good if not for... Uh, these religious values that are based solely uh, on certain beliefs. Okay? I also want to point out that this problem is not restricted, and Nick will pick up on this, but the point's not restricted to religion. Uh, it's really a problem for absolutism. You know, Kant says you shouldn't lie even to prevent a murderer from binding his victim. Uh, and some rules of war forbid preventive war even when an early strike is the only way to stop the war from uh, occurring, and it'll be a lot worse down the road. And the international rules of war, the public, publicly announced rules at least, forbid that. So that kind of absolutism is going to create similar types of inability to compromise. My point is simply that religion is one source uh, of absolutism. Uh, secular people, of course, then can't avoid the problem just by giving up religion. They've got to give up other sources of absolutism as well. But at least absolutism is a problem for religion, even if it's not a problem only for religion. So if religion leads to conflicts uh, of this, in this way and makes compromise impossible or difficult or irrational, then how could these religious beliefs become so popular? It seems to me that it, we, you know, one possibility, and here I'm totally speculating, is that religious beliefs actually do function to prevent some bad compromises by laying down principles where people would be tempted to compromise when they shouldn't, but then it gets over-generalized so that it then ends up ruling out the compromises that are good as well. So my conclusions are that when religion prevents compromise, what are we going to do? Well, we ought to be careful. I mean, religious traditions are not stupid. The people in them are 
intelligent, they thought these things through. If religion rules out a certain compromise, you ought to think about it again, you ought to look at it carefully. But after you look at it carefully, uh, and then you should make the, uh, it still looks good to you on your best inspection and you seem to have adequate information, then you should make the compromise and reject the religion. You could reinterpret the religion, but I think that amounts to just giving up part of the religion. Uh, so in the end, if we want to reduce conflict, what we need to do is reject at least those parts of religion that are getting in the way by undermining compromise. Okay, now we're going to have a commentary by Dr. Nibi Shackle. Thanks very much, Walter. That was a lovely talk. Um, Okay, so Walter's thesis, I think it's fair to represent as uh, being the thesis that religion can obstruct some good, thick compromises. Um, now, that's a proposition that uh, we can take in a causal way, um, and uh, we could also take it in a rational way. We can also take it in a theoretical way. The causal way is that simply, and as a matter of fact, religious belief uh, causes some compromises not to be um, agreed to, um, the rational way that uh, Walter referred to was that it would show that some compromises were irrational for a person, in particular example that Walter used where they'd be irrational on the grounds of self-interested rationality. What I mean by taking it in a theoretical way, and this is the way that I'm interested in talking about, is that um, religion, the content of religion, the content of some religion or some contents of some religions um, forbid some good compromises. Um, now, I, I think this is true, and I think it's a problem that is perhaps worse than you might think from uh, what Walter said, because I think it's a problem that's rooted in the logic of the normative systems that are embedded or contained within these religions or in the contents of these religions. Um, now, what do I mean by a normative system? In this case, I simply mean something that uh, results in verdicts of something being permissible or something being required or something being forbidden. And there are, I think, a fairly small range of quite abstract features of a normative system which will tend to obstruct compromises. Um, the first of these is when the force of the requirement uh, involved uh, or uh, dictated by the normative system is such that if something is required then it's forbidden not, so if an action is required then it's forbidden not to do that action. Um, now that's a principle which people who work on normativity don't always accept to be true for all normative systems. Um, now the, the next one I think is relatively uncontroversial, which is that uh, um, f being forbidden contradicts being permitted. And then if the normative system requires consistency, um, then it will not have any actions that are both forbidden and permitted. Okay, so those are quite formal features. Then there's four abstract features, which I think any of which is sufficient to uh, obstruct compromises. One is uh, if the normative system is taken to override and by that I mean that whatever its requirements are, they, uh, have, they override any other requirements that are in the region that are taken to bear on the choice uh, at hand. Um, the second uh, feature is that they are comprehensive. That is to say, they already include all the features that could bear on the choice. The third is um, if whatever kind of considerations that normative system makes use of uh, are held to be non-cancellable. 
Um, and then the fourth is if the kind of considerations that the normative system makes use of have a strict lexical order. Okay. And it's not that you put all those together. Um, it's that anyone individually uh, can obstruct. Okay, so I'm just going to work through an example. And uh, so just suppose for, uh, that the, there is some action that the normative system requires and there is a compromise in the, offer, in the offing which is some other action incompatible with the first action. Yeah? Now, and the compromises that we're interested in here are good, thick compromises. Obviously, so we're not interested in bad ones. So this is supposed to be a good, thick compromise. Now, it seems to me that if it's going to be a good, thick compromise, it must be at least permissible to take that compromise, um, even if not required. But of course, because of that first formal feature I mentioned, namely that the other action is required, and in this system, if something is required, then not doing it is forbidden. Um, th that not doing it is forbidden is contradicting the needed permissibility of the compromise. compromise. So we've got the compromise is both forbidden and permitted. That's ruled out, okay. Um, so that's ruled out just by those two purely logical features. Now, if the normative system has, uh, is, if its logical system is what's called monotonic, then we stop at this point. You can't get any further. Uh, um, because once, uh, well, okay, I'm not going to go into monotonicity, but what I will say is that monotonicity is not generally thought to be uh, likely to be right for normative systems. The reason being that we often, so monotonicity means that if you've got some considerations and something is required on the basis of it, it doesn't matter whatever you, else you add, it won't change what's required. But it seems quite generally we think that, well, given this load of considerations, then I ought to do this, but you add in some more, and perhaps I ought not to do it. So that would be it being non-monotonic. Okay. Now, in this case, in the idea of a thick compromise, um, and I think it's a very nice definition that, I mean, and I'm just going to work with that definition for the sake of this discussion. Uh, but what I've got to say could be said uh, on the basis of other definitions. Um, so here the idea is that there are other considerations, namely um, if we sacrifice some central values uh, in order to recognise the point of view of somebody else. And we're going to do this for the sake of, uh, we're going to make the agreement for the sake of peace and friendship rather than justice. Okay. So if it's non-monotonic, those are potentially allowed to come in and change what is required. So now this is when the other four features um, prevent the compromise. Because whatever those grounds are, so take overriding to start off with. Um, so if the normative system is overriding, then it's simply going to override on whatever basis it is that we're supposed to accept these sacrificing some of our central values, recognising the point of view of another, and agree for the sake of peace rather than justice. So if it's an overriding system, none of that is going to get you to make it permissible within that system. Uh, now, secondly, suppose that it's a comprehensive system. It doesn't have to be overriding, but it's comprehensive. But in that case, if it's comprehensive, it's already taken all those things into account in issuing the verdict that the compromise is forbidden. Um, so it won't work that way. If, again, independently, if its considerations are um, not cancellable, then it's simply not going to permit you to cancel some of its central values. You can't get rid of them, and so it's still going to be forbidden to do the compromise. And finally, um, well, this is the one where, where there is some room, um, if the considerations that it's got have some strict lexical ordering. But it's going to depend on the nature of that lexical ordering. If, for example, within that system, um, peace and friendship are strictly ordered above the value of justice, then it might well be that the compromise is permissible. Um, but in that case, it won't be that not doing it is required. Okay. However, it's perfectly possible that it's the other way around. 
that justice is held above the values of peace and friendship. And in that case, the compromise will still be forbidden. Okay. So, I've got a couple of minutes, haven't I? Mm -hmm. yeah. I am minding that. This is just a remark I'm going to make. Okay. Um, all right. So, so, so my point there is that those four <coughs> features are each sufficient to undermine compromise if they are features of a normative system, um, given those logical features earlier. And I think you can see that s some of the examples that Walter discussed actually work precisely because they bring in some of those features. So on the kind of consequentialist side via the considerations of heaven and hell, what you've got going on there are um, normative systems which are comprehensive, including everything, and including heaven and hell. Um, and once you've included heaven and hell, then they kind of win. Or at least, on the other side, I mean, it's obvious that heaven, the, the considerations of heaven and hell are not cancellable. Um, so that's how those ones are working. On the deontological side, the, uh, something like the supreme duty to follow Jesus is going to place, I mean, it being a supreme duty means that that duty is at the top of the lexical ordering of all the considerations. And for that reason, it's going to uh, defeat any other considerations. Um, and also that kind of uh, um, requirement tends to import the overriding. Also, the notions of absolutism, <coughs> if ultimate authority. Okay, so uh, so, um, and I think you can see that this issue of exclusivism or preferentialism or universalism, these are ways in which you might ameliorate some of these structural problems. So, if you've got exclusivism, it's harder to get rid of these. If you've got universalism, that in a sense is abandoning um, within the lexical ordering or with uh, within the comprehensivism having to take heaven and hell into account because we're all going to go to heaven anyway, so you can just take into account these other things. Okay. So I think that quite generally then, insofar as a religion has um, embedded a normative system with any of these features, then it will tend to abstract compromise um, simply because these features rule out a formal basis on which to countenance the grounds on which compromise tends to be Based. And furthermore, I mean, that because they're these formal features, it also applies quite plainly not only to religions, but to any normative system that has those formal, systems, those formal uh, features. And there are plenty of you know, moral belief systems that are not religious which have those. 